the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God has been calling the nation of Israel to love Him supremely. Moses, through several speeches, has listed out how God would bless the nation if they humbly obeyed the laws and statutes given them. They were to be a unique people, wholly devoted to God in everything they did. God desired them to walk close with Him and to not forget their covenant when they enter the Promised Land. But God knew that the people would eventually turn away from Him and not choose life. God, however, is abundantly merciful. And in His mercy, He gave instructions for the nation on how to go about repenting and returning to Him. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1, to see what true repentance would look like for the Israelite. The whole theme of the book of Deuteronomy is loving God supremely. And uh, I hope as we've been going through it that it's been challenging you and encouraging you, reminding you all that God's done for you, and reminding you of the importance of loving God supremely. But we are near the end. There's only 34 chapters in Deuteronomy, so we will be ending the Pentateuch soon. That means we're nearing the end for Moses. You know, he spent 28 chapters in Deuteronomy reminding this new generation of all that God did in their past, of his great love and his provision for them. He's called them to love God supremely in light of that. But now we come to the point of action. Will Israel, this generation, choose to love God supremely? Because Moses won't be there to help them out if they don't. So in chapter 29, before he turns over the reins to Joshua, Moses gathered the whole nation together to make a final appeal. He reiterated the the point that every person must do their part. Everyone's important. Otherwise, sin would infect the nation and bring about God's judgment. So now in chapter 30, after summoning all the people and telling them, you know, that everyone's important, Moses says it's decision time. Will they choose blessing or judgment? Because God is always willing to forgive. He's always willing to bless. Our experience of that is simply a matter of whether or not we will make him our supreme love. So chapter 30, we begin in verse 1. And Moses has just ended chapter 29 by talking about what will happen if sin spreads in the nation and the judgment God will bring. And so in 30 verse 1, he says, And it shall come to pass, same speech, shall come to pass when all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord your God has driven you, and shall return unto the Lord your God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that then the Lord your God will turn your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations whither the Lord your God has scattered you. Here we see the beautiful message that Moses brings to the people of Israel. He shows them the condition for forgiveness. If they end up in trouble, what do they need to do to be forgiven? And it's simple. It's to repent. 
And Moses, he explains how to repent here. He says, it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse. Moses isn't exactly confident Israel will always choose blessing. He believes at some point they will go the wrong way, and sadly it didn't take very long. But rather than point out how foolish they'd be by going the wrong way, by choosing the curses, he tells them what God will do if they come to their senses and repent. And so in this, we have a beautiful picture of repentance. The end of verse 30, he says, and you shall call them to mind. So he says, all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. So I've laid out God's word for you. And if you remember that, if you remember God's word among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and shall return unto the Lord your God and it shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, then the Lord will return your captivity, verse three says. Beautiful picture of repentance here because it starts with remembering God's word, the blessing and the curse. You know, it starts with remembering what God said. Genuine repentance, though it can be emotional, isn't simply an emotional response to the idea of God. Just kind of asking some supreme being out there to fix the mess I've made with my life. It can be a part of repentance, but that is not repentance. Repentance is an acknowledgement of two truths from God's word. Number one, that sin has consequences which I deserve. You have to come to that place where you recognize that the consequences of my experiencing is because of my sin and therefore it is earned. But secondly, this other truth, that God offers forgiveness if I will change my mind about my sin, if I will recognize it's my sin that got me in this trouble and I want to turn around. It's not just about God fixing my life or God getting me out of the mess I'm in or this idea of I need to get on the side of the supreme being. It's the idea of there's a God out there who said that sin has consequences and I ignored that. I brought this upon myself. But he also said that he'll forgive me if I'll change my mind about my sin. And that's beautiful because that's exactly what the New Testament says. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he wrote a heavy letter of correction. And so in 2 Corinthians, he talks about that in chapter 7, verse 9. He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. When he wrote the letter, there were some tears because Paul was heavy with him. I don't rejoice because you were made sorry but that you sorrowed to repentance. That's what 2 Corinthians 7, 9 says. You sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner or in a way that produced godliness, that you might receive damage by us in nothing, that you wouldn't suffer any loss from us. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation that doesn't need to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world produces death. He says, for behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sword. What does godly sorrow look like? He explains. What carefulness it wrought in you. The word there refers to a sense of diligence, that you were going to take this seriously, your walk with God. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, that you wanted to have a different reputation. Yea, what indignation, you began to hate sin. Yea, what fear, you began to reverence God. Yea, what vehement desire, you had a passion to follow the Lord. Yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, the idea you want to move in the different direction. In all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Paul writes to them and he says, I said some heavy things and it wasn't easy for you to hear. I wasn't happy that you kind of looked at it and go, oh, we're really bad. I'm glad that you looked at it and said, we messed up. But God promises that if we'll turn around, he'll forgive us and he'll, he'll help us change. And you tackled that with with passion and with a, a love for God that resulted in a changed church. 
See, part of that change of mind, that repentance, it means choosing to love God supremely instead of loving myself supremely. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus said the same thing. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, right? That's the first part about being a disciple. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. So repentance means choosing to love God supremely instead of loving myself supremely. And so if Israel would repent like that, God would restore them to a place of blessing. So it starts with remembering God's word, the truth that sin has consequences, and then I've, I, that's my, on me. But God offers forgiveness. And if they would do that and come back to him, the Lord says that he would restore them to a place of blessing. He says, verse three, that then the Lord your God will turn your captivity. He'll return you from being in captivity and he'll have compassion on you. I love this. The word compassion here, it means to have feelings and to show actions of kindness when someone's in a jam, someone's in a difficult time. But here's the part that's cool. Regardless of their state of guilt for their situation. Don't you love that? Like the Lord says, I'll have compassion on you. It gets even better. He goes on, I'll have compassion on you and I will return and gather you from all the nations whither the Lord your God has scattered you. And then verse four, it expands. It says, if in the King James, but literally it's even if any of yours be driven out to the uttermost parts of heaven. From thence will the Lord your God gather you and from there will he fetch you. It's not about earning God's love. That's impossible. It's about humility. And when I humble myself and return to him, God says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far you've gone for me. I will help you. I will restore you to a place of blessing. That's his compassion. Isn't that awesome? He says, I don't care that you brought it upon yourself. You turn to me, I'll rescue you and I'll bring you back. See, so often the enemy lies to us when we're far from God. He'll say, you can't go back. It'll never be the same if you go back. You've gone beyond the point of blessing. Well, he's right about one thing. It won't be the same because God's in the business of making it better. He's not in the business of just bringing us back to the same. He's in the business of making it better. And so in verse five, it says, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it, but here it is. And he will do you good and multiply you above your fathers. See, God won't just restore them to their land, but he'll make them even greater than their forefathers. You say, but wait a second, they... How can God do that? They don't deserve that. They're worse than their forefathers. Well, thank God that his blessing isn't based on what we deserve. Thank God it's all by his grace. Amen? It's all by his grace. They might be thinking, well, won't I just blow it again and incur God's judgment? Listen, all God's looking for is humility and surrender. A commitment to trust and love him with all that's in us. We can't go any further than that. I don't have the resources to actually begin to act that out. Like I say, okay, God, here's the deal. You said love you supremely, so I choose to love you supremely, and I've got this. I can do the loving supremely part. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he says, the will is there, but the resources, I find none of it. I find that in me, it is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. I don't have any resources to pull from within my own efforts, my own energy, my own strength. So you can't just pull up your big boy or your big girl pants and say, okay, I'm going to follow God. You make the choice and you say, I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to love you. I'm going to trust you. But when we do that, he begins to change us on the inside so that our little flame of love, that little flame of trust that we have, it blooms into something greater, a supreme love for him. Look at verse six. When we do that, 
It says, and the Lord your God, he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You know, we read that passage in in Genesis 17 when we started off with our scripture reading, right? Where God shows up on the scene and he says, Abraham, time to get up and walk thou perfectly before me. That's an interesting way to start a conversation, isn't it? I mean, I don't tend to do that. Like if I have my own kids, unless they're lazing around, not doing something, say, all right, time to get to work. The reason I'm doing that though is because they're not doing what they need to be doing. That's the context of Genesis 17. Abraham had been doing his own thing for 13 years. 13 years ago, he birthed someone called Ishmael. God had said, I'm going to make you a great nation. He said all this stuff. And then time went by and Abraham said, well, God's not doing anything. I think we need to help him out. And so they had through Hagar, they had Ishmael and Abraham's thinking, this is it, man. This is the life. We finally figured it out. It's so good. We helped God out. And for 13 years, the Lord didn't say anything. Abraham did his own thing, his own way for 13 years. And after that, God showed up and he told Abraham enough. It's time to live life in full surrender to me again. It's time to walk perfectly before me again. And the proof that Abraham would do that. God said, this is what I will do. And then he lists all these things. And he says, Abraham, this is what you will do. And the proof of that was circumcision. What's that about? It's a topic that we don't like to talk about too much, right? Painful to speak of. But circumcision, the cutting off of a piece of flesh, was never to be just a ritual. It was to be a reminder to live differently. A reminder of loving God before myself, of living his way and not my way. It was always to be an issue of the heart. And so the Lord says here, I mean, long before we get the New Testament teaching on circumcision, he says here that if we will love him supremely, if we will commit to trust and love him with all that's in us, to walk in his ways, that he will circumcise our hearts and to love him with all that's in us, with all our heart, with all our soul, that we might live, that we might experience all that he has for us. And so I ask you tonight, you know, have you allowed God to circumcise your heart, to love him supremely? Have you allowed him to set apart, to do the work that he wants to do, to change you on the inside so that you can actually live it out by his power and his strength? With this inward personal blessing here that God promises when they repent, God also promises that he'll restore the nation to outward prosperity. And so in verses seven through nine, we see the three national blessings that God says he will bring. And the Lord your God will put all these curses that they've experienced upon your enemies and on them that hate you and which persecute you. So the Lord will give them military prosperity. He'll give them safety. Verse eight, and you shall return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you this day. So God will give them spiritual prosperity where the culture will fear God and will love his ways and will walk in his ways. and There'll be a healthy culture. And then thirdly, verse nine, the Lord your God will make you plenteous in every work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. So God will give them economic prosperity. It says he'll make them plenteous, which means they'll have more than they need. They'll be able to export goods and they'll be financially prosperous. What's interesting is the United States or any other nation out there besides Israel isn't a covenant nation like Israel is. But this does show us an interesting principle here. It shows us that when the culture around us is experiencing downturn in these areas, militarily, economically, and and spiritually, The solution isn't to rail on the culture and to tell them to get its act together. That's not the solution. That will never change anything around us. The solution is personal repentance on the part of God's people. 
Me. That's the solution, me. Because when I turn to God and when I repent, I can begin to influence those around me with a supernatural life that they see in me. That is how we'll change the culture. So if we really want to change the culture around us, we need to look at our own hearts and experience God's circumcision there. Moses, one last time, reminds them that that's where restoration begins. Repentance, verse 10. If you shall hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn or return unto the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You know, again here we see very clearly that if they will hearken unto his voice, that means his word. If they will listen to his commandments and his statutes. We've learned throughout Deuteronomy because he keeps saying those words over and over again. His commandments are his will, what he wants me to do. His statutes are his standard, what is right and what is wrong. Genuine repentance, it always bends the knee in those two areas. It says, God, I am willing and I am going to line my life up with what you say is right and I'm gonna leave behind what you say is wrong. That is what happens when genuine repentance occurs. It starts with understanding that it's my fault I'm in the mess I'm in, but God offers forgiveness and then I must choose to change. I must choose to turn around and go in a different direction. To line my life up with what he says is right and to leave behind what he says is wrong. It's when I say, I'm going to do what you want me to do from now on, Lord. I can't think of any way that that's more illustrated than in the life of Paul. You remember he's Saul of Tarsus and he's arresting Christians, dragging them before the magistrates, finding them guilty, sometimes murdering them or doing physical harm to them. And then what happens on the road to Damascus? Jesus, bright light comes. Saul falls to the ground, blind. He can't see, but he can hear a voice. The voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why have you been persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you've been persecuting. It's been hard for you to kick against the goads, hasn't it? Been trying to get your attention, but you keep pushing me away. And what's Saul's response in that moment? The most repentant response you can get. He says, what do you want me to do, Lord? I mean, that's it. That's 9-6. Go read it. What do you want me to do, Lord? Prior to that, you read the beginning of the chapter, Paul had a plan. He had letters from the Sanhedrin to go to Damascus, a foreign city, to go arrest those who called on the name of Jesus. He already had a plan. He had probably the next work for the next few months lined up. But in that moment, when he's confronted with Jesus and he realizes what he's done, he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? And then he gets his marching orders from the Lord and all the other plans, they're gone. They're gone. Salvation, it's not complicated. (laughs) Neither is walking with the Lord. God hasn't hidden what's right and what's wrong. He didn't leave it for us to figure it out on our own. It's our job to respond to it because he spelled it out clearly by giving us his word. So here in verses 11 through 14, Moses explains the simplicity of pleasing God, the simplicity of walking with God. He says to them in verse 11, for this commandment which I command you this day, it is not hidden from you. In other words, what God says is understandable. The commandment he's referring to here, this commandment, it's all the commands that are included in their covenant with God. The moral commands, the civil commands, the ceremonial commands. Everything we've been studying from Genesis to Deuteronomy. He says all that stuff, it's not hidden from you. Now, we think of hidden like it's something that can't be seen. But the word here, hidden, it actually means difficult to understand or incomprehensible. He says, my word is not difficult to understand or incomprehensible. What's the point there? Well, here's the point. The Bible is understandable if you will take time to understand it. When I was in middle school and high school, I would barely read 
my textbook, if at all. Um, I'd pay attention in class just enough to get by. There was this really pretty girl who sat behind me. I ended up marrying her. She was slightly distracting. So when tests came, I got C's, high D's. And so I'd end up with C's and B's when I, I could have gotten A's if I just applied myself. When I gave my life to Christ, I knew that needed to change. I started taking notes in class. I asked my teacher questions. I would reread my textbook after the lesson. And guess what? I got straight A's from that point on. Except at art class, but that's a whole different reason why. I remember I had a C in art class, and I had to beg my teacher to do extra credit so I could get a B. And it wasn't because I wasn't trying. I just, I can't draw things. I remember Joel was young, and, and one of the things he loved was dolphins. And we had C-roll passes, and he loved dolphins. And mommy would always draw him dolphins, and Beverly's a very gifted artist. And, and so he'd say, Dad, Dad, draw me a dolphin. And so I drew him a dolphin, and he looked at me, and he looked at the paper, and he laughed. He goes, that's not a dolphin. <laughs> and when I went to college, I did the same thing. I... I studied hard, I read my textbook, I, I, I stayed after if I needed to, and I ended up on the dean's list each semester. Now, certainly portions of the Bible require a little bit more study than others. I wouldn't recommend going into the last eight chapters of Ezekiel as your first Bible study. But even just a casual amount of investment into Bible study will make the Scripture come alive to you. All of my kids at some point, some will get to this place, but the older ones have already gotten to the place where I I taught them how to do inductive Bible study. I'm not an inductive Bible study expert, you know, and I'm I'm not even necessarily a good teacher at things. I I do okay here because I have a Bible in front of me. Get me outside of there and I become even more long-winded than I am here. With them, I mean, I didn't didn't give them a ton of tools, but I just explained how you can look at the Scripture, observe some things, do some studying, get the correct interpretation and find out, and and then apply it to your life. I've done that with, with both the boys. And I'm blown away by what they would come up with when they would share with me when we, we would do a Bible study together or they're just sharing with me what they're doing on their own time. Now, that's not because they're like the smartest individuals in the world, although I think my boys are smart. That's not why. It's because they invested some time. If you're gonna just casually read your Bible, not put any time into it and expect to understand it, you're not gonna come away with anything better than if you stepped into a calculus class and didn't pay attention and then got a test. But if you even put in just a little bit of investment, the Bible, the scripture will begin to come alive to you because God didn't make it incomprehensible. It just requires some investment. Now, what God says is understandable, but what God says is also within our reach. He says, neither is it far off. It's not beyond your reach is what that means. It's interesting, many novels or movies, they're just stories about a hero attempting an impossible task or obtaining an impossible object. Even romance stories are like that. You know, if you go to watch a chick flick, you know, it's about the the girl who wants the guy, but, you know, the guy's not interested in her or doesn't know she's interested in him. Either way, it's the same thing. There's always some impossible task out there, some, you know, some quest that they're on to achieve something or to get something. And you cheer for them, you know, as they're moving towards it and you groan with their failures because they're working so hard to get that impossible thing. What God wants us to do, in other words, what is right and what is wrong, it's not like that at all. It's right in front of us. It doesn't require some heroic task and now you've got some portion of the scripture that no one else has and you've got the secret to life. It doesn't require you to, you know, climb a mountain. It doesn't require you to slay a dragon or to defeat some foe so that you can all of a sudden get access to the truth. I simply need to read it. He says, it is not in heaven that you should say who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it down unto us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near unto you. 
even in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. It's right in front of us. I simply need to read it. It's right there in my mouth and then apply it to my life. It's in my heart and then choose to obey it to do it. It's right there. Read it, apply it to your life and then live it out. God is never far. Even if we have wandered away from him, all we need do is turn around and he is right there waiting for our return. He is so merciful and willing to forgive. If we would just admit we sinned, turn to him and acknowledge we cannot find restoration in ourselves, he will forgive us. He will restore us. He loves us. He loves you. So don't be afraid to turn to him when you failed. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.